All right. Well, as you guys know, today is the day that Christians all around the world celebrate the most important event that's ever occurred, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But we're going to do something a little different this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at a familiar account in the Old Testament that's actually a little bit controversial and, and even difficult for many who have read it in the past. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac that's found in Genesis chapter 22, if you want to flip over to that. Um, there's a better than good chance that you've read this before and thought, what the heck is going on here? And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but um, but it's, you know, I'll admit, if you pulled this passage out and isolate it from everything else we have in the scriptures, it would be easy to think this is a really gnarly story that's hard to explain. But fortunately, we don't have to do that. Um, now, I realize that this might be a strange passage to um, to go through on Easter, but maybe in, in some sense, it's the best time to address it because sometimes you know, there's an elephant in the room and you, you don't want to talk about it. You just kind of, but, but this may be the perfect time to talk about something like this. Um, there's a strategy, I think, that's becoming more and more common in churches today to, to basically take anything that's hard in the Bible and, and kind of hide it and hope that nobody sees it or notices it. Uh, there's even a guy that talked about we, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, this idea like, let's just leave that behind and keep moving forward without it because there's some hard stuff to explain there. And the idea is that if we just ignore them, we won't be forced to get God off the hook and basically have to defend him or explain his behavior. But, but here's the thing. I'm not worried about that because God is amazing and his word is amazing. I don't have to apologize for him or try to spruce up his image in some way like we could do that. We don't ever have to worry about getting God off the hook because he's not on the hook. He's God. right? We're the ones on the hook, not him. So, so there will be times when we struggle to understand passages or we wonder what's going on. We shouldn't be surprised at that because of who he is and of who we are. In fact, this is the way Romans 11.33 puts it. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The Bible is compared to a two-edged sword. Uh, it, it does surgery on us exactly the way we, we need it and where we need it. Sometimes it hurts, sometimes it heals, sometimes it comforts, and sometimes it convicts. And so it's interesting to me that there can be a passage in, in the scripture like this one that can um, one group can just hate and use it to mock Christianity, and another group can love it and find comfort and deep meaning and hope in it. And the passage that we're looking at today is exactly that. Um, there's a, a famous atheist who's way smarter than me named Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he gives a perfect example of somebody who hates this story. He describes a God who is just toying with us. And he says, this is a disgraceful story of child abuse and bullying. Wow. Is that what's happening in this text? If so, how is it possible for Christians throughout the ages to find beauty and blessing and hope in this account? Well, first, let, let me just point out something that, that I think is worth just saying. In this account, if, if Abraham and Isaac, if, if, this, if this condones child abuse, it's an anomaly in the Bible because you won't find that supported anywhere in the Bible. In fact, child abuse and child sacrifice is something God hates 
and calls it evil and judges people for that, you know, the people that worship Moloch and Baal and he hates it. And he's, he goes on record, for, you know, for hating it. The Bible consistently places an extremely high value on human life and consistently condemns the taking of a life. So we know that to be true. And in fact, as we go through our passage this morning, I want you to notice there is never a point where Isaac is at risk at all. Not once. Never. And we know this because God had already prepared a substitute. I'm getting ahead of the story, so if you don't know it, I'm giving you some spoilers already. But but God had prepared a substitute. So God already knew that. You know what? I think Abraham absolutely knew it too. And we'll, we'll develop that as we get into it. But um, the second thing I want to just point out in regards to the way we read the Bible and, and problems, even with passages like this, is people want to read the Bible as a moral guidebook. They just simply want to look at it as some kind of an operation manual for life. There's even a cute acronym people use about the, the Bible, you know, B-I-B-L-E is basic instructions before leaving earth. Is that how we're supposed to read the Bible? Is it a moral map for us to follow? Are we supposed to emulate the behavior of those we read about? Or are we supposed to learn something from them? Maybe something about the nature of man and the destruction of sin and the need for a savior and about God's incredible and merciful plan of redemption you know, if you just try to emulate all these people in the Bible, <laughs> this is where you get polygamy and weird stuff going on. That's not it. There are moral things in the Bible that we're supposed to follow, but, but it's not that. It's, it's really a big story about a hero named Jesus and the lengths that God has gone to to save sinful man. It's much more of a love story than it is a moral handbook. And we, and we need to look at it that way when we read it. The story of Abraham and Isaac highlights this truth in a very tangible way because it's really telling us about a much bigger story. And my hope is that by looking at this, we will come away with a correct understanding and move from offense to wonderment. Because this isn't so much about God asking Abraham to do the unthinkable, but rather God giving Abraham a preview of Jesus willingly coming to do the unimaginable. So I love this story, and, and I hope that by the end of this time today, you, you will be there as well. So let's read Genesis chapter 22, and I'll just say buckle up, because if you've never read this before, I already warned you, but here we go. Chapter 22, verse 1 says, After these things God tested Abraham, and he said to Abraham, or he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. That's a really weird request. But, but weirder than that is Abraham's unflinching response to it. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, the third day, just saying, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together up the mountain. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went up, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, 
Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on your boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and look and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, this passage starts out by telling us that God tested Abraham. And I can already hear Richard Dawkins protesting and saying, well, this is a pretty messed up test, isn't it? Well, it depends on what the purpose of the test is, doesn't it? Tests are given in order in order to find something out. And they can be given so that the teacher can find out what you know, or they can be given so that you can find out what you know. And all knowing God already knew the answer. When this was all said and done, Abraham also knew the answer beyond beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then for us now that get to to read this account and follow it through, we also will be able to discover the answer. So what was the point of this test? What was the question being asked? God was really asking Abraham, do you trust me? Do you believe my promises? And do you have faith in my ability to keep them? Do you trust me? Do you believe my promises? And do you have faith in my ability to keep them? Why is it important for us to know the answer to this question? (laughs) Because our salvation hinges on that. It absolutely hinges on that. It's not about what we do or don't do. It's about what we believe, who we believe in. Now, it's also worth pointing out that Abraham was over 100 years old at this point. So this was not his first test. Um, And for the record... Abraham had not always done very well on some of these tests. He was he was probably like a D average student, I would say, which I can relate to because um, it's kind of what I was, you know, back in the day. In case you need some evidence of, of, of his uh, his you know report cards, Exhibit A, making his wife say that he was his sister in order to save his own skin. That's an F right there. I, I, even I know that. Right? Exhibit B. Sleeping with his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, to help God out to produce a son. Another solid F right there. Exhibit C, making his wife say that she was his sister again to save his own skin. Two times. I mean, that's 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 not good. Now, as I said, Abraham had a very long track record with God. If this was their very first encounter, and this is, and this is what went down, Isaac and Abraham story, th- that would be kind of messed up. I would agree. His, his response, even Abraham's response at that point, would be completely shocking. But Abraham has walked with God for a long time now, and they've been through a lot together. The point I'm trying to make is this was not just blind faith. Um, faith doesn't have to be devoid of reason. There are all kinds of reasons for us to believe the things we believe and to obey God. Now, this is most definitely an amazing act of faith. Don't misunderstand. But it's based on a life of experiencing God. It's based on knowing God's character. It's based on seeing miracle after miracle. It's based on watching God act in his life in a loving and faithful way for years now. So is this a messed up test? I don't think so. I can imagine that Abraham, like myself, probably felt like a complete failure a lot. You know, sometimes God tests us so that we can know where we stand. 
he, he, he lets you know what, you know, look at what I've done in you over the years. Look at the progress that's been made. Sometimes those tests are a blessing. Maybe God in his grace wanted him to see something different this time than he had before. Something that might convince him that he's, that he's not a failure, that God's done something amazing in him. And make sure you understand this. It's not, not Abraham's awesomeness we're talking about here. We're talking about the teacher's awesomeness. God gets the credit for the good and the growth that's in our lives, for sure. So how did Abraham fare with this test? I mean, he aced it. If you can ace a test, he did it. He trusted God with the most difficult thing imaginable. And he, it doesn't even look like he flinched. That's what amazes me in this. Like, oh, all right, I'll do what God says. He didn't flinch because of what we know to be true. Abraham believed God. That's it. Now, there's a difference between simply knowing something and actually believing something. So each one of you, when you came in here today, um, you all had knowledge of what a chair is. I assume, right? Hopefully you all you all know that. But. That knowledge turned into belief when you were willing to rest your full weight upon it and trust it. That's that's the difference. Um, How was Abraham able to believe God in that way where he could rest all of his weight upon him? And the answer is because he's experienced God all through his life, time and time again. This was not Abe's first rodeo. In fact, in Genesis 15, God came to Abraham and he promised him his son. He brought Abraham outside and he said, look toward the heaven and the number... Uh, of the stars, you, you're able if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. So he's talking about Isaac. Through your son, this is what's going to happen. God made him a promise that this would happen. And it says that and Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed that God would do this. But as we turn the page, just to chapter 16, the next one over, we already see Abraham faltering. I already mentioned this, but he decides that, you know, God's not coming through in a timely way. I don't know if you've ever done this. And, he, and maybe he just needs a little help from me. Maybe that's what he's been waiting for is like he's busy. You know, he's probably got other things on his mind. So I'll come in and I'll I'll just move this thing along a little bit. And so he and his wife decide that they should grab Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. And it's like, well, marry her and have a baby with her. And this will be the answer that, you know, God couldn't provide. So we'll just help him out. Well, that didn't go well. That just, they created nothing but headaches for everybody involved. Probably, arguably still is. Abraham was reminded that it's better to trust God than come up with your own plan and do your own thing. And then he learned about believing God again when Isaac was born because it was an absolute miracle. Both Abraham and Sarah knew that having a son at their age was an impossibility. When Abraham heard God's plan, he fell on his face and laughed to himself saying, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Sarah had pretty much the same response. She laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord, meaning her husband, back in the good old days. I'm just kidding. It was common. Sorry. Stick to the script. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? I mean, she, neither of them could even believe this was a possibility. Another failed test, right? To which God responded by asking them this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, he's teaching them. And the answer to that question came the following year when they became the proud parents of a bouncing baby boy named Isaac. Like 10 pounds, 9 ounces. I know people like to hear that. I don't know, but something. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So the fact that 
Isaac was born at all. The fact that he was alive on that day they walked up the mountain was already an unbelievable miracle. God had already done the impossible. And so for Abraham to believe that God could and would raise Isaac from the dead to keep his promise was not a big stretch for him. He's already seen what God can do. That's why Abraham didn't break a sweat when God asked him to do what he did. And this is confirmed for us in the book of Hebrews. Like I said, we don't read an isolated passage. We look at the whole scriptures. The book of Hebrews says something amazing in chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So it's basically saying what we just talked about. If God promised that you're going to have offspring through this kid, and Abraham believes God keeps his promises, then this is what he surmised. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what that's what's happening there. God promised that all nations would be blessed through his promised son, Isaac. Abraham knows that God keeps his promises. Abraham believed God and finally passes the test. You know, I want to be there. I want to be in that spot of Abraham to that point where when a difficulty comes my way or a trial comes my way or something I don't understand comes my way, I don't even break a sweat. I wish I could say I'm there. I am not. He didn't even flinch. He just been, oh, Okay, I believe God. I wish I could do that. The, by the way, the only way a father would be willing to do this with his son is if he believed beyond a shadow of doubt that he would come back to life, period. That's the only way. And Abraham knew that. It's like, okay, I'll do what you're asking, God, because I know you'll raise him back. And in fact, that's confirmed. I don't know if you noticed that. When we were reading through chapter 22 of Genesis and verse 5, Abraham talks to the two guys that are waiting. Listen to what he says. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham's like, we're not, I'm going up the mountain with him and I'm coming down the mountain with him. And he knew that. Somehow he knew that. I think that's amazing. Amazing faith in God. And then listen to the words about Abraham from Romans 4. It says, there wasn't any unbelief that made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we get to get in on this too. We can believe in the same God in the same way, and it will be counted to us as righteousness. This is talking about saving faith, believing God, believing his promises, and, and having faith that he's able to, to do what he said he would do. So here's the question you need to ask yourself. Do you just know about God, or have you placed the full weight of your belief upon him? There's an old story I heard years ago. It stuck with me, and I hope it'll be of help to you. I didn't come up with it. I just remember it, and I'm changing a little bit because, you know, so don't say, oh, that's not the way it goes. You're right. Just listen. It's about a guy who strung a tight wire across Niagara Falls, and then he attempted to walk across it with a wheelbarrow. Now, imagine you're there on that day, and he looks over at you, and he, and he asks you, do, do you think I can make it across? What would you say? I don't, I don't know you from Adam. I don't know you at all. No, maybe, maybe not. I'm not putting any money on it, that's for sure. Well, so the guy grabs the wheelbarrow, goes across, comes back without a hitch. Wow, 
Then he asks you again, second time, do you think I can make it across? I don't know. Maybe so. I just saw you do it. Maybe. I might put a fiver on that. You know, I might. Maybe. So he does it again. Comes back again. Do you think I can make it across? Does it five more times? Does it ten more times? Does it twenty more times with ease? And then he comes back and asks you again. Do you think I can make it across? And you say, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. And so he says, great. Hop in. That's the kind of belief we're talking about. Abraham, was he all in? Heck yeah, he was. Are you all in? That's the kind of belief we're talking about. Are you all in? You know, I am. I'm all in. I am staking my entire eternity on my belief in who Jesus is and what he has done for me through his work on the cross. But I wasn't always all in. There was a time when I... I bargained with God. I remember it so clearly. I was 19 years old. Somebody shared the gospel with me. I went back to my mom and dad's house and I I stood in the dark of the garage kind of, um, and I I bargained with God that night. I remember just sitting there and kind of going, okay, Lord, I believe in, you know, I know who you are. I I believe in what you've done. And and I kind of want in on this. I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. But I'm 19 and not to, you know, go too weird, but in Idaho, the legal drinking age was 19. I just turned 19 in October and it's November. It's like finally legal, Lord. There were things that I, I didn't want to not do. There were things that I still wanted to experience that I had, not good things necessarily, but but I remember thinking, okay, God, some of them were good things too, but I, I just remember thinking, I'll give you I'll give you this much. I mean, look at the deal I'm offering. This is a sweet deal. Look, I'll give you, this is like 75, 80% of, of me. What do you think? pretty good. And I remember walking in the house that night crying, knowing that I had not surrendered all. I wasn't a Christian. And I met with that same guy the the next night and he shared the gospel with me again. And I went home that night. I didn't even go home. I did it right there when the guy shared it with me, actually in the room we were in. I'm all in, Lord. I'm not holding anything back. I will die to self. I will give myself entirely to you for Jesus. And I did. I was all in. And it changed everything. In fact, that was the first night I went home to my mom and dad. They were downstairs watching like Cheers in the basement. This was 1986. And I, I can't tell you how many times I walked in that house not in my right mind. I'll just leave it at that. That night I walked in stone sober, but I just met Jesus. And I went into the room where they were and they looked at me and they said, Are you on drugs? It's <laughs> like, now you ask this? No. No, I mean, I, I was, and again, this isn't everybody's story, but this was a night and day conversion for me. The lights in my eyes were on, like they could see something different had happened to me. Praise God. That's the belief being illustrated in this story. And another thing we see from this story that is fantastic, and I hope you get this, is that the hope of the resurrection is not a new idea. It's an old one. You know, what's the oldest book written in the Bible? Um, not, not historically, but chronologically, or historically, not chronologically. Job, right? Good job, guys. Guess what Job talks about? The resurrection. He does. It's right there in, in Job 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. 
the promise of the resurrection, knowing that he would, he would be there, resurrected, made his heart faint within him. It's always been there. Abraham knew something about it as well, because we're told in John 8:56, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And I believe Abraham got a pretty spectacular preview of coming attractions on that day on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac. He, he saw it all played out right there for him. It's amazing. God's amazing plan of redemption culminates with resurrection and our bodies uh, becoming made new, new bodies, all of that. And it's also this glorious restoration back to the way God always intended things to be. That's what we have to look forward to. I know that God has the power to do that. I know he had the power to resurrect Isaac. I know he has the power to resurrect me. I know he has the power to resurrect you. You know why I know this? Because he had the power to resurrect Jesus Christ. Jesus died, was buried, and then three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive. So the account of Abraham and Isaac is an amazing account. It's a story about belief in God, trust in his promises, and hope of a future resurrection. It's really all about what God has done for us. It's not teaching us what we must be willing to sacrifice to God, but what God was willing to sacrifice for us. I hope you see that, because once you see that, you can't unsee it in this, in this narrative, in this story. And in fact, I'll help you out a little bit. Think about some of the words and the images that we just read when we went through that Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Does that sound familiar? Again, you have not withheld your son, your only son. It's talking about a son who would fulfill the promises made by God, who is the source of hope and blessing for all the nations. And then we have Abraham, a father, who places wood on the back of his son. Again, bells should be ringing. And a son who would climb a hill near Jerusalem, carrying the wood on his own back that would be the wood used to sacrifice him. And then we see the point of the cross, that God provided a substitute so that they would not have to go through the agony and the pain that would have happened otherwise. A strategically placed ram was caught in a thicket. And we read that in there as well. God himself will provide the lamb, son. If you've only ever considered Abraham and Isaac in this story, you've missed the bigger story. You've missed the bigger picture. Because what God the Father did for us through his beloved son was infinitely more hard than than we could ever imagine. What he did for us should be far more offensive than the story of Abraham and Isaac because he sacrificed his son for you. He went through with it for you. This is the story of the Bible. It's a story about a father who loves you so much that he gave his only son so that you could have eternal life. And this is about a son who willingly gave himself to take on your sin and to provide you with his righteousness. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, our sin alienated us from a holy God. and There was nothing we could do to bridge that gap. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to stand in that gap for us. And if we will receive that by faith, 
we will receive him. We will get his promises. We will receive salvation. Our text ends with these very appropriate words. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Does that remind you of another mount? Absolutely. God made the ultimate provision for us on the Mount of Calvary, where Jesus willingly suffered and died in our place, paying the debt that we owed, but that could have never paid. And this story, like the story of Abraham and Isaac, can have a very happy ending because nothing is too hard for our God. Three days after Jesus was buried, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. He is risen. Amen. Do you believe that? Then hop in. Right. All in. Father, thank you so much for an account like this. It's in the Bible that is hard to to understand. But then when we see that the the beauty of it and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, we are amazed. Thank you that because he is risen, we have hope. Uh, that we will also rise. Thank you that you've beat sin for us. You beat death for us so that if we would receive who you are by faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, confess that he is Lord, we will have life abundant forever. We know that that costs you everything and it costs us nothing. It's a free gift. Lord, I pray that we would believe you, that we would trust your promises and have faith to believe that you can keep them for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.